0: So I'll give you two examples. Viz.ai, this is so cool. It's the first company that has gotten uh, this special reimbursement from Medicare. So what this does is it looks for LVO strokes, which is a very specific, very damaging type of stroke. And minutes count, literally seconds count when someone presents in the emergency room with an LVO stroke. And so, viz.ai is software that's used with the imaging, it's imaging analysis, and it is able to pick up LVO better than a human being. So, it now, if you use this in the ER on the suspected stroke patient, uh, you're reimbursed $1,040 now. So this is a technology that improves the patient's life, right, could save their life and is being reimbursed and being reimbursed at a pretty high level. You know, $1,000 to use the software is, is pretty good.
1: This is the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. In the next two weeks of episodes, I interview Robin Farman-Farmain, a keynote public speaker and entrepreneur that has invested in several healthcare technology startup companies. Through her own personal health journey and work with cutting-edge technologies, she sees innovations coming to the medical office space that are and will change healthcare delivery and care. She is a professional coach and has written several books, the most recent on Becoming a Thought Leader. Next week, we discuss how private practice physicians can use different marketing techniques to compete in the new healthcare economy. Welcome to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. I am so excited to
0: be here today. Thanks for having
1: me. Well, I'm excited for this interview. You know, I I want to introduce you accurately to the audience because, you know, I could say you're a health technology expert. I could say you're an entrepreneur. I could say you're a public speaker, but I know you encompass a lot more. So how do you define yourself?
0: I call myself a professional speaker and entrepreneur. uh, But yes, I've built up a crazy different uh, ecosystem where I can have multiple revenue streams from different, different skill sets of mine.
1: What started you on the path of exploring how technology can help clinicians provide more efficient or effective treatments for the patients?
0: Well, in my day job, I do high level business development or help uh, with product on early stage pharmaceutical, med device and AI software programs. And all of these are really helping the patient. Now, the reason I chose to go into things like working on curing cancer or treating sleep apnea, which is a $10 billion industry, It's because of my background. So at the age of 16, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. By the time I was 26, I'd had 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries and three organs removed for that misdiagnosis. And, uh, I was on high dose methadone and I went to my doctors and I'm like, I don't think this drug is doing anything. I need to be off of this now. I think there's something else wrong. And they said, well, you know, next step could be to surgically implant a morphine pump into your spine. I was like, are you kidding? I was 26 years old. I was essentially a shut-in. So I went home that night, fired my entire healthcare team, took myself off some of the methadone, which is pretty significant uh, opioid withdrawal. I ended up getting diagnosed correctly when I rebuilt my team of physicians with Crohn's disease, was put on a medication called Remicade, and I went into remission within 24 hours. At that point, it had been a 13-year battle, and I had spent two or three years as a shut-in because I was just in such significant pain. Wow. So
1: a personal journey.
0: Personal journey. And I, I made it my life's goal to impact 100 million patients worldwide because I believe in paying it back by paying it forward. I know I am alive today not just because of that one doctor who ended up diagnosing me correctly and putting me on the right medication pharmaceutical, med device, software companies, EMRs, hospitals, clinics, doctors, nurses. I know they all had a part in my living through that 13 years. And so I can't pay them all back. So I believe in paying it back by paying it forward.
1: That's great. Well, can you share some examples of um, the technology-based healthcare delivery innovations that you speak about um, that are already in the marketplace or that you expect to expand or coming to the market in the near future or something you know that might be available in several years further in the future? So one of the
0: things that is really helping lift up the shift in healthcare delivery, shifting where the patient gets their care from the hospital or clinic into their own home is, of course, not just telemedicine telemedicine tools. I'm talking Mm -hmm. clinical-grade remote diagnostic devices or clinical-grade wearable technology. So, of course, you're probably familiar that the iPhone is FDA-cleared for their EKG single-lead monitor, which can pick up, of course, AFib. But there are a lot of other devices besides just the Apple Watch. We now are looking at continuous glucose monitors that can monitor the glucose levels in interstitial body fluid, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in patients in their home environment. We see things like Tito Care, Tito Care, which is widely available in Best Buy. It's an Israeli company launched in Best Buy a couple of years ago now, about $300. And they have outfitted not only patients' homes, but lots of different places that have just a nurse on staff, maybe like a school or a sports arena. And what it is, is it's four clinical grade medical devices otoscope, which looks in the ear, stethoscope, temperature monitor, and tongue depressor. And those clinical grade applicators attach to a video camera. So what you do is you call a physician through the app, and they're partnered with American Well, Amwell, which of course is one of the largest of the telemedicines. And the doctor walks you through using these four clinical grade devices on yourself or stay on your child. And the doctor is the one who sees the video feed live. So she can say things like, okay, can you move the otoscope a little bit to the left Robin or or move it a little bit to the right so that she has a better view. Interesting.
1: Well, you mentioned telemedicine, which is, um, you know, since COVID, it it was prior to COVID, it was sort of starting and then COVID it exploded, but pre-COVID it was available, but not covered by insurance. And during COVID it's exploded. Now, I think the main thing is to keep clinicians in contact with their patients and now it is covered by insurance. So the clinicians get compensated for their time. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all of this. And as a patient, I'll say, you know, unless I need to see a physician for a physical exam, I would much rather prefer to have a telemedicine visit to discuss any like just exam results or treatment recommendations or, you know, more of a discussion rather than a, a physical, you know, having to look at anything. We don't have to drive to the office. You don't have to wait in a waiting room. And I'm sure the physician can also like schedule themselves for like all their telemedicine follow-up calls in an afternoon and, and maybe become more efficient that way. But you know, they can have the patient's labs and information on their computer while they're speaking to the patient. And they can reach patients even in rural areas or that have long drive times and have more conversations and better direct their treatment course. I mean, do you agree?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, some of the biggest payers, so United Healthcare, it's a Fortune 5 company, and they are the largest of the privates. They have been reimbursing for telemedicine for a couple of years now. Not only that, but pre COVID and during COVID, they send emails to their patients. So I happen to have United Healthcare, and I get like a weekly or, or bi monthly email saying, Hey, Robin, how are you feeling right now? you know, you can click here to see one of our telemedicine partners on demand right now, and we're going to pay for it. And they have been doing that for a while because it is significantly faster, easier. And then you're making sure the chronic disease patients, because what you care about is really the chronic disease patients, people who are healthy, who see a doctor once every year or two that's a whole different story. But the chronic disease patients need constant interaction with their specialists, even when they're in remission, right? I still talk to my GI doctor like five or six times a year through email most of the time. And I see him in the office once a year. Now, moving those kinds of things to email or telemedicine video calls or or regular audio calls is completely fine because not only is there no reason in about 70% of the basic primary care doesn't actually need to be in person because there's no physical exam. Same thing with the specialist, right? There are many times I go in to see my TI doctor and he doesn't do any type of uh, measurements on me at all, except for, of course, my vital signs. The nurse always automatically takes blood pressure, temperature, and weight when you walk into an office. But all of those things can be done now in a patient's home. Right, and, and
1: you can just tell them what the results are or show them. Exactly. So, you know, I see telehealth making a ton of strides in behavioral health as well, you know, especially for counseling visits where more patients, they might be more willing to speak with a clinician if they're in their home in a private, comfortable setting and able to fit it into their schedule more, you know, just with drive times. So I imagine this will help patients seek the help from clinicians that fit them better via telemedicine so they could find the right fit behavioral health clinician rather than say, well, I can't go to him or her because it will take me an hour to get there and an hour back. But now with telemedicine, I mean, you could even have somebody in a different state.
0: Exactly. So if you're not dealing with a psychiatrist who's prescribing medication, there's really no reason to be in person in a therapist's office. And in fact, it has a lot more negatives than I think positives. Because things like, I, you know, I went to therapy after I lost my mom to cancer about 12 years ago. You know, it helped, but it was so incredibly stressful driving there, trying to park in the area. And then I'd walk in and I hated the smell of her office, like hated it so much. I'm like, I am miserable and stressed out getting to therapy. So any help that she had on my, you know, being able to deal with my mom's death was really negated by just the extreme stress I went through getting there and back. Right, and so that's the kind of thing that is perfect for virtual therapy, and it doesn't even need to be video or audio. You know, companies like Talkspace, and they've helped me too. So I just happened to have a, a bad breakup, and it was maybe four years ago, and I was like, I don't have a therapist. I'm like, you know what? I was in the back of a Uber. I'm like, I'm just gonna sign up for Talkspace right now through the app. And I did. And it was seamless. and It was so easy to do. And it was like 11 PM at night. And I started texting someone right away. Right. And then their therapist, at least back then, I haven't used them in five years, but at least back then they were checking their text messages twice a day. So they would respond. And sometimes you just catch them on there and you could have like a long conversation. Oh, very nice. So it comes to you like it, it's there when you need it because you're never going to schedule a nervous breakdown at
1: 2 p.m. on Thursday <laughs> exactly life always happens on um, a slow Tuesday afternoon <laughs> yep <laughs> well you know they they're obviously the new healthcare economy there's a significant amount of consumerism because the consumer is now being burdened with a ton of costs so you know they're they're asking more questions and and pricing actually you know some services out and as practices, realize this and they'd say, I guess now we have to provide some customer service. You know, We need to be more convenient and efficient for our patients. Do you see practices adopting a lot of this technology where they they have to in order to compete because patients are becoming more accustomed to them? Do you see practices starting to look in the future and to get some of these technologies on board?
0: Oh, of course. I mean, we're talking a $3.8 trillion industry. You're going to have Doctors that are back in 1950, and you're going to have doctors who are cutting edge, right? It's all over the board. But what I've been seeing, especially when I've been checking in with my doctor's appointments, is they are streamlining it. So doctors are now, or, or medical practices, because doctors are, are providing the products and service, they're, they're not actually running the business. So the, the medical practices, they're starting to realize that a patient experience starts when the patient thinks about needing an appointment. It doesn't start when the doctor walks into the exam room, but we've been basing, you know, everything on that eight minute encounter. And so making it easier for patients when they get there, things like not having to stand in line or or not having to interact with a receptionist, that the only thing she's allowed to do is schedule and take payment. She can't answer any questions of mine or medical questions whatsoever. So that is a really ridiculous interaction. Why are we forcing patients to go through that? So I remember when I checked in and I went to my dermatologist last month at Pants and it was so easy. It was amazing. While I was walking over there, I paid for my visit, my copay on my app. I checked in, I uploaded my insurance card. And when I walked in, I just sat down in the waiting room and they called my name.
1: Absolutely. Awesome. Well, you know, I find it interesting that if you go to a, a physician that you've been going to, but you know, you, maybe you haven't seen them in a year, you sit down and have to do like those eight-page paper documents and fill. I mean, you know, when nothing, nothing significant has changed, and um, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, like such a nightmare. Yeah, you know,
0: I have not seen that many people going uh, electronic with that yet, and I'm hoping that they do and they realize that that is really a massive pain point for patients. Right. And because they have to constantly refill out everything, it's not going to get done right, right? There's going to be fudging. They're going to forget things. It's going to stress them out. So if they remember being stressed out at that appointment because they had to do so much paperwork, they're not going to come back. Right. And that's a problem.
1: Well, you know, obviously all of these technology, it is an investment for a practice. And most likely, you know, insurance isn't going to cover any investments in technology, because insurance usually lags a little bit. So, you know, if they're performing something, if they invest in a technology and you're using it, they may not get reimbursed right away or may not, you know, and reimbursements as, you know, every physician says they just continue to go down. But given the out-of-pocket costs from the patients that they have to pay, because insurance covers less and reimbursing physicians less, and then the patient has to pay more, you know, do you just see that there's going to be this convergence where doctors are going to have to, invest first so that the patients will come and then have the payers kind of catch up just in order to capture patient base.
0: So- It depends on which product that you're talking about. So I can foresee, look at the big EMR companies, right? So Epic and Cerner and and some of the other ones, they now have uh, the ability to have apps on them, right? So it's more open, like not as open as say Apple's iOS, but it still has the availability to now integrate. And uh, there are other companies like Apple who allow the patient portal side of the EMR to be downloaded and integrated into one on the Apple phone. So the technology exists now to do that, as well as the fact that, that Epic and Cerner have opened themselves up to that kind of thing. And so that makes it a lot easier because that means... You can just let the the big, you know, the big EMR companies and all the startups work on finding plugins and creating that easy patient experience, the front door, essentially, that's online and they manage it. Right. And then it only costs you sometimes pennies or dollars per patient. Right. So it's considerably cheaper to use a plugin type software a lot of the time. And we're talking over the next two or three years. That is going to explode because a lot of these data laws uh, have passed in the past, you know, year or so. So we're going to see that kind of ecosystem explode the same way we saw the ecosystem around the Apple phone or the uh, the Android phone explode with apps.
1: Absolutely, no, I, I see that on the horizon for sure. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the the goal I think for the patient is to reduce some healthcare costs, and then the goal for physicians would be to get paid, you know, they, they want to get paid for for their service fairly. So do you see how these innovations can directly result in, you know, lower costs for patients and then physicians being able to get paid more for their services?
0: So I'll give you two examples. Viz.ai, this is so cool. It's the first company that has gotten uh, this special reimbursement from Medicare. So what this does is it looks for LVO strokes, which is a very specific, very damaging type of stroke and minutes count, literally seconds count when someone presents in the emergency room with an LVO stroke. And so Viz.ai is software that's used with the imaging, it's imaging analysis, and it is able to pick up LVO better than a human being. So it now if you use this in the ER on the suspected stroke patient, uh, you're reimbursed $1,040 now. Wow. So this is a technology that improves the patient's life, right? Could save their life and is being reimbursed and being reimbursed at a pretty high level. You know, $1,000 to use the software is is pretty good. Let me give you another example, brain check. So brain check is clinical grade FDA clear neurotests. They've taken the standard neurological testing that you have in a doctor's office that usually is done by a clinician. They've gamified it, electronified it, and turned it into a smart tablet app. And they're distributing instead of through neurology clinics, which there's only about, there's less than 14,000, I think, neurologists in the US. There's over a quarter million primary care doctors. Mm. So they're distributing through primary care. Now, the big thing with things like dementia, because that's, that's what it's trying to catch is that 30% of dementia is preventable. Hmm. Preventable. But the problem is, is that there's so few neurologists. You actually have to go to a specialist, which, you know, sometimes can take a one to four months to get into the, see the doctor. And most of us don't go to a specialist until we're so far advanced, and especially in something like dementia, that pharmaceutical intervention and behavior lifestyle modification is no longer Mm -hmm. going to make a difference in the patient's life. So BrainCheck is able to catch dementia at those early stages, through primary care, and it just needs that app. So you check in at your primary care office or you're doing a telemedicine visit and they send you the app or you take an app on a tablet that's at the primary care. You don't have the labor cost of the clinician anymore. Not only that, uh, you're testing a lot more people. So potentially saving lots of money on treatment costs in advanced stage dementia. And in addition, they are reimbursed at, I want to say, $432 last I looked if you use the cognitive care platform and the
1: cognitive testing. You would think, too, once these technologies become adopted and they can get a huge sample size of information, this is where it's like, you know, if a patient opts in and and wants their information, you know, to be shared for, for research purposes. But don't you think that they're going to start getting a ton of data and then once they um, process all of that, they might be able to actually help us, you know, identify yes. markers and like and things that we can do to avoid, you know, certain health problems. Absolutely. So think about blood pressure.
0: Most of the clinical grade recorded blood pressure that's, you know, in data silos or, you know, in the big databases are taken on patients in the clinical environment. Now there's two problems with that. First of all, you're not mostly measuring healthy people or baselines, right? You're measuring people most likely at their sickest. It's the chronic disease patients and the inpatients in the hospital that get their blood pressure taken six or eight times a day. I get it taken three times over a two-hour infusion every time I get Remicade, right? So most of the readings are people who are at their sickest or quite sick. So there's no baseline. But secondly, whenever you go into a clinic, there's something called white coat syndrome, It means that you're nervous or you just ran in from the car and you ran up the stairs. You're outside of your normal environment, and that's where your blood pressure is being taken, which (laughs) means it can actually be an incorrect reading. So you're never getting that perfect baseline. But with all of the new technologies, things like Omron's $500 blood pressure monitoring watch, right? It's the cuff method. There's BioBeat, which is a sensor that sticks right here. And then it picks up heart rate, heart rate variability, and blood pressure through uh, PPG technology, which is the same technology you find with the pulse oximeters that go on the end of the finger. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is just the first time someone has been able to extrapolate the data and get blood pressure through that reading. These are both clinical grade devices, right? And it's easy for the patient because they don't really have to do anything. They put on the device or or they stick the sensor to their chest and they put on the matching wearable and they're done, right? They can get that clinical grade blood pressure in the home. This means we can now get it in the home on patients who are healthy and asleep. Do you realize we, we have none of that data, that doesn't right. exist, like a database on, of blood pressure readings on, pa- on healthy patients while they're sleeping. But yeah, right. hypertension, it's one out of three people in the United States are hypertensive.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I just think the the possibilities of being able to measure people in a full 24-hour regular daily cycle life and then have those data points, I, I think would be incredibly helpful for physicians. Absolutely. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.